Let's turn to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. As we continue to make our way through this monumental chapter, incredible chapter, we will focus on verses 9 through 14 today. But I want to read it in context, so I want to read from verse 1 of chapter 17. Genesis 17, verse 1. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, From any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the great God of Abraham, we give thanks, Lord, and call upon your name. We sing praise to you and glory in your holy name because, Lord, we know by your incredible grace, you have made us children of Abraham. You have made us heir to the promises of the covenant and co-heirs with Christ. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember your wonderful 
works this morning. As we get a glimpse of the gospel in this covenant sign of circumcision. Lord, help us to trust you. Give us faith, Lord, that we may respond like Abraham and live in faith and obedience. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I bet many of us have sung that last song we sang just a few moments ago, Come Thou Fount, maybe even most of our lives. Maybe some of you have sung that song so much that you're actually familiar with the original version of the song, which we don't sing anymore, but it it actually has a really strange word in the second verse. Let me read you the original version. Here's what it says. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. You can probably imagine why we don't sing that now. Almost no one knows what an Ebenezer is anymore, right? In fact, I'll bet even as I read that, the first question in your mind is, what in the world is an Ebenezer? Does it have something to do with Ebenezer Scrooge from the Christmas Carol? As a matter of fact, it kind of does. But Charles Dickens didn't make up Ebenezer. He gets that word right out of the Bible. This is a wonderful biblical word with a biblical image of God's faithfulness. It comes right out of 1 Samuel chapter 7. In this passage, God's people are repenting. They're repenting of rebellion and idolatry, rebellion that just lost them the Ark of the Covenant. But God graciously restored the Ark to his people, and God graciously protected them from a Philistine attack that they were coming in to just destroy the people of God. And so God says, I want you to respond this way. Samuel, I want you to take a rock. I want you to set it up. This is an Ebenezer. Stand this rock up, and this rock is a stone of help. It's a stone of remembrance. Essentially what God is telling his people, I want you to build a monument here to my faithfulness. So that when you see this rock in this field turned up, you'll remember what I did today. You'll remember my faithfulness. You can bring your kids back here, point to that rock, and tell them the story again of how I delivered you and was gracious to you. So that even your children can have faith that I will continue to be faithful to you in the future. We like these kind of reminders, don't we? These tangible, physical signs, these reminders of God's faithfulness. I'll bet most of us even have Ebenezer-like things in our life. Maybe some of you have a prayer journal that you go back to, refer back to, and see how the Lord has been faithful to you to answer many prayers over the years. Or some of you might have a picture, a picture of your baptism, or maybe a souvenir, even from a Christian camp where you repented and trusted Jesus for the first time. We have all kinds of these little things in our minders because we love this, don't we? These signs, these tangible reminders, and I think we love them because we know we're doubtful. We know that we're forgetful, sinful, distracted people. We know that our faith can be so weak. And even these tangible reminders can be such a blessing, such a help. And God knows we need all the help we can get. In fact, God knows that this is to be the case for all of his people throughout time. And so God has constantly given his people covenant signs throughout history. We call them sacraments to help them when their faith is weak, to help them endure in faith to the end. And these signs are like Ebenezer's. They point to some amazing realities 
but they are so much better than even this Ebenezer in the Old Testament. Because these signs don't just point to one promise, one reality. They point to the covenant relationship of God with his people. And they are sealing confirmations. They are guarantees that God will keep his promises to the end. That he's good for his promises. And today we get to study one of those covenant signs. We get to study, as you heard when we read, the sign of circumcision. Which is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant that we saw cut back in chapter 15. Now last week we covered those first eight verses. We looked at the God of the covenant. And God renewed the promises and reviewed the promises again. And so this week we look at the sign of those promises we looked at last week. We look at the sign of circumcision. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to see more than anything else today is that God is preaching the gospel through the sign of circumcision. God is preaching the gospel, not just to Abraham and to his offspring, but all the way to us, his spiritual offspring as well. God is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ through circumcision, picturing for us the work of Christ, the atonement and the cleansing needed in him. Through this sign of circumcision. And I hope we can see that today by answering three particular questions. The first is simply, what is circumcision? What is circumcision overall? And then secondly, what does it signify? What does it point to? What is it a sign and seal of, in other words? And then lastly, what should we do about it? How should we respond? Does it have anything to do with us today? And that's really going to be just a a short point at the end. So it's kind of like two and a half points for you there. So we'll spend most of our time on what is circumcision and what does it signify. So first, what is circumcision? Well, simply put, it's a sacrament. It's a sacrament, like I said before. In fact, it's one of the first sacraments instituted by God. I don't know if we could say it's the first. The trees in the garden might be, we talked about that as well, but it's definitely one of the first instituted, administered by God here. But I'm sure that begs the question then, well, then what is a sacrament. What is a sacrament? Now, Chad has said a number of times, a sacrament is, is a visible word. It's a visible, tangible, external sign given by God, graciously given by God, administered by God. But it points to invisible and spiritual and in inward realities. I think Chad has used the wedding ring as the most consistent reminder of that, right? The wedding ring, this visible reminder that that couple made promises on their wedding day. That they are in a covenant together. They have vowed to keep those covenants. And then that sign, that visible reminder, is a physical reminder of those invisible signs. But you know what? We've already seen one of these as well in the book of Genesis, haven't we? We've seen signs pointing to invisible realities all the way back in Genesis chapter 9. In the Noahic covenant. If you remember, God made an incredible promise to his people. He promised that he would never flood the earth again. He would preserve mankind so the Satan crusher can deal with this sin finally and fully. Do you remember what sign he gave? He gave the rainbow, didn't he? That was the sign. That was the physical sign of those invisible promises that God would never flood the earth again. Well, circumcision is like the rainbow in that way. It's pointing to promises. But it's confirming the whole Abrahamic covenant. That's everything we've been covering for weeks now. All the way back from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 17. That Abraham will be given a seed 
He would be given a son, an heir, that Abraham would be given blessing. He would be a blessing to the world as well, that he would be given land in the promised land, that he would not only become a great nation, but from him a multitude of nations would come. And the promise of promise, the central promise to all of this is that God will be Abram's God and his children's God, and they will be his people. As I said last week, brothers and sisters, that goes well beyond a patch of land in Canaan. It goes well beyond those first few kids that Abraham was able to have. These are promises for all the people of God. That means this covenant, this is an administration of the covenant of grace we saw from the beginning. These promises are taken right out of the Garden of Eden, that creation mandate, and they extend all the way to Jesus Christ and his works. That means this sign is a means of grace for God's people to lay hold of his promised blessing and salvation in Christ. That's what a sacrament is. And this passage gives us a wonderful picture of what that sacrament is and how closely it's tied to the sign. So look at verse 10 with me. Look at verse 10. It says this. This, this being circumcision, this is my covenant. Do you hear that? Circumcision is the covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now listen to this. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Wait a minute. If you're paying attention, you might be thinking, well, wait, is, is this sign? Is this a sign of the covenant, or is this actually the covenant? Because you say in verse 10, this is my covenant. In verse 11, this is a sign of my covenant. I would say yes. This is how sacraments work. This is actually a wonderful picture of sacraments. In fact, we say this when we do the Lord's Supper, don't we? We don't say this is a sign of the new covenant in my blood, although it is. We say this is the body. This is the blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. That's what Jesus says. And the idea is that the sign and the things signified are so closely connected that even in this passage, the covenant can be named by the sign. And this is a really important reality because we have to understand that all sacraments, they're not just empty rituals. They're not just empty signs. They're not just good ideas for God's people. They're not merely an Ebenezer, merely a reminder for God's people. Now when Abram and his offspring believe the promises of God, they look by faith through the sign to Christ, they really receive the thing signified. They really receive Christ. And sacraments are a means by which they lay hold of those blessings by faith. They're the vehicle that God uses to save his people as they trust in him and help them to continue in grace. Now, we have to be careful we don't go as far as the Catholics do because the Catholics make almost no distinction between the sign and the thing signified. So much so that if you receive the sign, if you receive baptism, whether you have faith or not, then you're saved because it's just all wrapped together. We're not saying that at all. Sacraments are closely tied to the sign, but there is a distinction there. Listen to what our confession says about this. Westminster Confession of Faith in in chapter 27. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, 
immediately instituted by God, representing Christ and his benefits. That's what we're saying about circumcision here. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and the effects of one are attributed to the other. That's what we see here. We see this covenant sign of circumcision is actually called the covenant of circumcision. It's closely tied together. Now there's so much more we could say there, and Chad will go into that a little bit to continue the baptism series. But hopefully I've given you the answer to our first question. What is circumcision? It's a sacrament. Secondly, it's a household sign. It's a household sign. Now, if you were paying attention, this is hard to miss. Hard to miss in this text. You see this cadence over and over again. This promise is to you and to your offspring. This promise is to you and your household, right? Look at verse 9. We see that in our passage here. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. Who? You and your offspring after you. Throughout their generations. Verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And this isn't new. We studied this last week. It actually is repeated even more in the last section. Look at verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. For an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. Like I said, it's hard to miss. Five times in these first 14 verses, we see this cadence. To you and to your offspring after you. And then one more time at the end of the chapter in verse 19. This is clearly a household sign. Now there is something else that shows us that, but it's really hard to tell in English. It's actually interesting because God is speaking to the whole household most of the time in these verses. In verses 10 through 12, if you just scan over those verses, you see a ton of yous, don't you? You and your and all those things. You don't have to count them all up. There's 13 of them there. Just in verse, verses 10 through 12 alone. And except for in verse 10 when it says, your descendants after you. And then at the end of verse 12, which says, your seed... Every other you, 11 of the 12 are plural. They're y'all, right? If you're from Texas, or all you all, the way you want to talk about it, right? They're plural. God is clearly establishing his covenant, not just with Abraham, but his whole household here. The promises, the signs, they're the identification with God for the whole household. Now, I'm sure some of us would say, well, of course, that makes sense. Circumcision is a Jewish sign. It's an ethnic marker, right? It's a marker to mark out the descendants of Abraham. Well, if that's true, then we have a really big problem with verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not your offspring. Wait a minute, those aren't descendants of Abraham. Those are foreigners in Abraham's house. They're supposed to be circumcised as well. Look at verse 13, we get some clarification. Both he who is born in your house 
descendants of Abraham, in other words, and he who is bought with your money, foreigners, servants, slaves, not Jews, shall surely be circumcised. You see, this mark, this sign, is not just a Jewish ethnic marker, marking out Abraham's descendants. It's a marker for the household of God, for all of God's people who are in covenant with God. And what's fascinating about this this sign, this sign of circumcision, is at this point in history, this is not something new. They wouldn't have heard, circumcise their kids, what in the world is that? They know exactly what that is because it was actually a common practice in a lot of the nations around them. Now we know, of course, later on the Philistines didn't practice that, so there were certain nations that didn't, but it was common in Egypt and in Syria and all other places. But here's the thing. The way that they practiced it was totally different than what God was asking them to do here. Circumcision was seen as a mark for entering manhood. It was actually done mostly to teenagers as a coming-of-age kind of ceremony or before a man would get married. The idea there is that now you're going to use that, and so now we're going to mark that. It's a picture of reproduction there. So when God says in this verse, circumcise your infants... On the eighth day, that's really weird. That's pretty much unheard of in most of these places. It's unusual. But God was making it abundantly clear. These little infants who have no clue what a covenant is, who are not showing any evidence of faith, they receive the sign too. Why? Because they're part of my people. They're part of the covenant people of God. They're part of this household that is my people, this exterior, this external household of God. So what is circumcision? It's a sacrament. It's a household sign. And third, it's a covenant responsibility. It's a covenant obligation. Now, I talked a little bit about covenant obligations last week. And I want to add to that a little bit and clarify a few things because I was a little bit messy in my language unintentionally, and I left the door open for antinomianism, and I definitely do not want to do that. So let me be perfectly clear. When we talk about covenant obligations, and we talk about this covenant, there is one sense where this covenant is absolutely unconditional. God has graciously covenanted with his people, with Abraham, based on no merit that he is producing in and of himself. We saw that, right? God didn't come to Abraham and say, all right, Abraham, earn this. Do a few things, and then I'll give you this blessing. He didn't come with Abraham and say, let's make a deal. This is a bilateral two-way deal. You produce 10%, and I do 90%. No. No, this covenant is not salvation by works. It's an incredible blessing given to Abraham and to his people. And it's all of grace. And in that way, we think of this as an unconditional covenant. But in another sense... This covenant is conditional, isn't it? We know that because God gives conditions. He gives Abraham consequential conditions in this text. We saw one of those last week. Look at verse 1. At the end of verse 1, it says, Walk before me and be blameless. We get another condition in verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. So God gives conditions. You have to receive the covenant mark. You have to walk before me and be blameless. And what happens if you don't keep the covenant? 
Look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Those that would not receive the covenant sign are excommunicated from God's people, no longer part of this visible people of God, no longer part of the covenant. I hope you can see this excommunication is the exact opposite of the blessing. I will be your God and you will be my people. Well, now God is saying, look, if you reject my sign, you reject my covenant, you reject me. And the curse is the ultimate curse. I am not your God. You are not my people. That's what God is saying about somebody that would reject this sign. Now, if you're listening carefully, hopefully you're seeing, well, wait a minute, hold on. How can this be gracious and conditional? Seems like an oxymoron. Those things don't go together. How can this be unilateral, God doing it one way, and it still be something that we have to keep? God is still giving us conditions. How is this possible? Well, brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like in the covenant of grace, isn't it? Where God supplies exactly what he commands. God calls his people to believe. He gives them the sign pointing to what they are to believe in. But then God guarantees, he seals this promise, showing that he will graciously provide faith for all of his elect. You see, all God's children will believe. All God's children will persevere in faith to the end. All of God's children will keep the covenant. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is empowering them to do so. It's just like it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, when God is calling us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Why? For God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or in Colossians Uh, Chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. And I know we haven't got there yet, but isn't this what we see in Isaac and Ishmael? Both raised in this covenant household, they both inherited the promise. They both received the sign. They both were told to trust in what the sign signified. To look to the Satan crusher by faith. But only Isaac believed. And why is that? Well, as Romans 9 says, God gave Isaac faith. God saved Isaac. God was at work in Isaac, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of the covenant of grace. Yes, it is conditional. Obedience is necessary to receive these blessings, but it seems unconditional because God meets every condition for us in Christ and then in us by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. That's why we rejoice that that Christ came and lived the life that we failed to live, obeyed the law where we failed. So that when we trust in him, we are risen from the dead, given the Holy Spirit to guide us and sanctify us and help us become more like Jesus. And even when we obey, once we have that spirit in our heart, we're not doing that because we have such great faith or because we're so strong or so righteous. No, the Holy Spirit is graciously empowering that faith in us, graciously causing us to obey, even causing us to repent, to look to Jesus. 
when we fall short so that we can live blamelessly before our God. You see, it's all of grace. It's all of grace from start to finish. God calls us to trust and obey. And then God gives us everything we need to trust and obey him. So what is circumcision? It's a sacrament, it's a household sign, and it's a covenant responsibility. Let's move to our second question. I promise this will be a little shorter. But what, what does circumcision signify? What does it point to? What is it a sign and seal of? First, it's a sign of belonging to God. It's a sign of union and communion with God. Again, this gets right back to the essence of the covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. We saw that in verse 7, didn't we? God says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And listen, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. He repeats it at the end of verse 8. And I will be your God. This is what the covenant's all about. It's God saying, I belong to you. And you belong to me. That's the greatest blessing. Now, I hope in your mind when you hear those words, you think of a wedding. You probably do, right? That sense of belonging. That's what a wedding pictures. In fact, a wedding is the ultimate picture in the sense of Christ and his bride. It's a picture of that union, that belonging to each other. Even the wedding ring itself is a picture of belonging, isn't it? When we see a wedding ring, even in our old world, in our, in our world right now, our current world, it tells us that this person belongs to another. This person has made a covenant vow to another. They're in covenant with another, and they belong to that person. That's the essence of what that's talking about. It's belonging. Now, kids, if you don't like the whole wedding, mushy, gushy illustration, I have one for you, too. It's cheesy. I'm sorry, adults. You have to bear with me on that. Don't take this too far, by the way. Metaphor breaks down very quickly. But, kids, I'm sure you've seen Toy Story. Everybody's seen Toy Story, right? It's probably some of your adults' favorite movie, I'll bet. It might be. But in Toy Story, do you remember how Andy marked his toys? What did Andy do? He took a Sharpie or whatever and wrote his name on the bottom of their foot, right? Maybe you've even done that to your toys, writing it on their foot or writing it on a tag or something. Now, when Andy did that, when you do that to your toys, what are you saying about that toy? It belongs to me. This toy is spoken for. It doesn't belong to any others. But circumcision is a bit like that. God is circumcising his people. He's calling them to circumcise themselves so that they're marked off as belonging to God. Now, I hope some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute. That's not necessarily true in some sense. Because not all Israel truly or belong to God in the fullest sense. I mean, look at Ishmael. We already saw prophecies about him. Look at Esau later on or the many others who walked away from the faith. Did they belong to the Lord? Well, yes and no. Paul acknowledges this. He says in Romans 9, verse 6, not all Israel is Israel. And what Paul means by this, he's saying, look, some people only belong to the external house of God. They only belong to the visible church, the visible people of God. They receive the sign, they inherit the promises, they're blessed by God, but they don't trust in the promises. They don't look through the sign all the way to Christ by faith. And so what happens to them? Verse 14, they're cut out of the covenant of the visible people of God, proving 
their hearts don't belong to the Lord. Now, if you've been listening to Chad's um, baptism series, you know what distinction I'm making here. This is the distinction of the visible and invisible church. And this is a wonderful example of it. This is the visible church of God at this point. Abraham's family is the visible church of God. They all receive the covenant sign. They inherit the covenant promises. But some of them are not saved because they don't trust in what it signifies. Those will be part of the visible church of God, but not the invisible church of God. In other words, they belong to Abram's family, but their hearts don't belong to the Lord. Now, if you want more on that, I encourage you, go listen to Chad's sermon on that. It's really a helpful distinction here, but I want to move on to our next answer. So what does circumcision signify? It signifies belonging to God. Second, it signifies the need for atonement, the need for righteousness and forgiveness As Abraham cuts the foreskin away on himself and his kids and all the men in his house, he's meant to remember another cutting. He's meant to remember the cutting of the animal pieces back in chapter 15. The cutting of those animal pieces, this picture of judgment, this picture of cursing, where God promised, this is what's going to happen to me. I will be cut, I will be torn in two if I break my word. That's what he's remembering there when he does this cutting of himself. He's also meant to remember in verse 14 that those who would not cut themselves in circumcision, who would not receive the sign, would be cut out of God's people. They wouldn't receive the blessings of the covenant. See, this is a picture, it's a bloody sign, a picture of death and judgment, the death and judgment that is passed down because of our sins, passed down all the way from Adam. And it's a picture of the death and judgment that would need to happen to make us right with the Lord. You see, in many ways, this is a picture similar to what the sacrificial system will be. It's reminding God's people that bloodshed is necessary to be right with God, to make atonement for sins. And of course, this all points to the one who would shed his blood for us, who would bear this curse and keep the covenant in our place, but would suffer the death of a covenant breaker. The Bible says that he was cut off from the covenant. He was cut off from his people, excuse me. He suffered outside the camp in Hebrews 13. And his bloody sacrifice would make final, lasting atonement for sin, as it says in Hebrews 10, verse 14. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, Paul makes this connection between atonement and forgiveness as well. In the passage that Jason read earlier, in Romans 4, I'll only read verse 11, where we get this picture of sign and seal. It says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You see what Paul's saying there? Paul's saying circumcision didn't make Abraham righteous. He was declared righteous before he received the sign. Because he was looking to Christ through the promises. He had faith long before the works. He was looking through the promises and eventually through that sign at the atoning work of Jesus. That's the righteousness that he received by faith. And the sign was a seal that God would complete that atonement. That God would keep his promises Circumcision didn't atone for Abraham's sin, but it pointed him to the atonement he desperately needed to be right with God. 
So what does circumcision signify? Belonging to God, the need for atonement, and third, the need for sanctification. This gets at the heart, literally, the heart of circumcision. It's circumcision of the heart, regeneration. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2. In him, in Christ, you also were circumcised. How? With a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. See, Paul is speaking here of a putting off of the flesh, of a spiritual circumcision that happens with Christ's work. Because in Christ, our hearts are regenerated. By faith in Christ, our hearts are spiritually circumcised as God is cutting the sin out of our hearts in this picture of recreation and regeneration. This is the symbolism, by the way, of the eighth day. Why did God tell them to mark them, to to circumcise them on the eighth day? There's lots of theories about that, but I think the, the big picture is the eighth day is the day of recreation. Seven days, clearly in the Bible, is the period of creation. We see that right from the beginning. But the eighth day is this picture of new creation, recreation. Eight people emerge from the ark as God recreates the world. Christ rose on the eighth day or the the first day of the week, literally a Sabbath plus one. And we meet on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, the eighth day, Because it is a picture of this regeneration, this rebirth, this recreation that we have in Christ. That's what circumcision is pointing to. Regeneration, recreation, a circumcision of the heart, the sanctification we need to enter our heavenly home. Now I'm sure some would be thinking, well, wait a minute. This is Paul seen with new covenant eyes. This is Paul looking back to the Old Testament with all the promises fulfilled, looking back and kind of reading the Old Testament in a way that the Old Testament saints didn't see it. That's not the case. Listen to Moses in Leviticus 26, verse 41. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and with Isaac and with Abraham. God expects his people to have a circumcised heart as part of this repentance. Circumcision was never just about cutting away the flesh alone. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, part of the promise God gives to his people. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Isn't this the constant rebuke of the prophets as well for God's people? Constantly saying you're circumcised in the flesh, but you don't have a circumcised heart. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because the evil of your deeds. You see, brothers and sisters, circumcision has always pointed to the need for regeneration, the need for sanctification. Cutting away the foreskin was a reminder that in Christ our sins would be cut away. That only in Christ, he will remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And so we've answered these questions. What is circumcision and what does it point to? What does it have to do with us, just briefly? I have two quick applications on how we would respond to that. First, simply repent. Repent and be baptized. If you haven't figured it out, I doubt it by now. Most of us have because we've been swimming in this water for a while. 
circumcision is replaced by baptism in the New Testament. Baptism is the new covenant mark for God's people to show who belongs to him, who is part of the visible church. It's the sign and seal of the same covenant realities. Baptism and circumcision point to the same thing. They both point to Christ. We see that circumcision is this bloody sign, this picture of atonement and death and judgment. And what's baptism? This picture of death and judgment as we go under the waters of judgment, identifying with Christ in his death. And circumcision is a sign of regeneration and recreation and rebirth as we identify with Christ there. And then what do we do in baptism? We raise from the waters. Not just identifying with Christ in his death, but also in his resurrection. We're remade. We're a new creation. Our hearts are made anew in Christ, and we receive the Holy Spirit who continues to make us new. That's why Peter makes this massive connection at the day of Pentecost. Just think of how massive this is. In the day of Pentecost, when everybody's going, what in the world is going on with God's people? The Holy Spirit comes on his people. The first thing that comes to Peter's mind is, you know what? I need to talk about Abraham. I need to talk about circumcision. Actually, he paraphrases Genesis 17 when he says this in Acts 2. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. In other words, this is what circumcision is pointing to. The work of the Spirit to circumcise the heart. This is what the Abrahamic covenant was looking forward to. And that's why he calls his people right there, repent and be baptized. Trust in these covenant realities. He's making the connection there. In Colossians 2, Paul makes the same connection between baptism and circumcision. After he says, we need a circumcised heart, he says this, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses. And listen, the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Do you see what Paul and Peter are are pointing to here? Baptism is the symbol of belonging to the Lord. You are an unbeliever here today. I implore you to look to these signs, look to these promises. The only symbol that is in your future is the death that baptism symbolizes. You've rebelled against God, and all of us have. All you've been doing is storing up wrath for yourself. And if you died today, you would suffer in hell for all of eternity. So I implore you, I call you, repent. Trust in what this sign points to. If you are a believer You're looking to Christ in faith. Then receive the sign of baptism if you haven't already. God's calling you to do that right here, commanding you to do that in his word. And make sure all of us, even if you have received the sign, that we look to Christ in faith. And this leads me to my last application. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't neglect this incredible sign that we don't develop a practice of making too little out of this covenant sign of baptism. And look, this is a risk for all of us, both young and old. If you've been a part of the church for a while, this is really easy to do. We can get so used to seeing people come up here and get baptized and think that baptism is is just basically a display of, of cute kids coming up here. 
or nervous and excited or a display of faith for somebody. That moment of faith when they're showing that to the world. We look at that and it is a moment of faith, but it's not just that. It's a sign that points beyond the person, the sign that points to Christ. Every time someone is being baptized, God is putting the gospel on display for us. God is putting his work in Christ on display. God is reminding us that Jesus has conquered death for us. And that when they raise from the waters, we too raise from the judgment that we should receive in hell. We have been raised in Christ. And it's a reminder that God has kept his promises. These promises from thousands of years ago. When you see someone get baptized, it's a picture of God keeping his word. As he guaranteed Abraham he would do it, he has done it. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, every time you see a baptism, recognize it. It's as such a gift to us. Don't neglect it. Every time you see a baptism, look to Christ in faith. Repent of your sins. Trust in him. And by the power of the Spirit, walk blamelessly before your God. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your all-sufficient word and for your work for us in Christ and everything that we failed to and your continued work in us by the Holy Spirit, making us holy. Father, help us to rejoice that this is all of grace, but then never to sit back and just try to ride this out, knowing that we've been called, we've been commanded to keep this covenant, to be faithful to the end, but we know It's by the power of the Spirit's work within us. So Lord, as your people, help us to honor you. Help us to live holy lives, repentantly honoring you to the end of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Spirit is still at work in you to sanctify you to the end. So let's hold on to the bread and the cup together. We'll sing the song and take it together after the song.